0: Hello, you're listening to EpiTalk, Behind the Paper, a monthly podcast from the Annals of Epidemiology. I'm Patrick Sullivan, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and in this series, we take you behind the scenes of some of the latest epidemiologic research featured in our journal. Today, we're talking with Dr. Sebastian Meller about his article, Canine Olfactory Detection of SARS-CoV-2 Infected Humans, a Systematic Review. You can find the full article online in the November 2023 issue of the journal at www.annalsofepidemiology.org. Dr. Sebastian Meller is a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Small Animal Medicine and Surgery at the University of Veterinary Medicine, Hanover, Germany. His research focuses on neuroscience, epileptology, and behavior in the field of clinical veterinary research and translational medicine. Dr. Meller, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So you published this meta-analysis that pulls together a theme of sort of One Health, which is where you know veterinary medicine and human population health come together, and also SARS-CoV-2, which is still a really present issue in our public health. Can you talk a little bit about the purpose of the study that you did? Like, what question were you trying to answer?
1: Uh, yeah, so we had like the first study or first uh, systematic review to like bring together the many claims that were out there in the research community that dogs might detect the coronavirus. And uh, so that was quite new, of course, Uh, it emerged right in the pandemic, I think that's logical. And um, so we wanted to see if the dog is really able to function as a diagnostic or as a screening tool and to see how a dog performs uh, versus like uh, established methods like PCR techniques uh, which we consider the gold standard yeah and of course we had some criteria to exclude and include uh, the studies and we were also looking if that there are enough uh, let's say samples provided so positive PCR positive and PCR negative samples and then we uh, try to make a story out of it
0: great So what was the main finding or the key answer to your question, which is, you know, is there evidence that dogs do sort of a good job or a sufficient job at detecting SARS-CoV-2 infections?
1: Yeah. So uh, indeed, dogs are able to detect coronavirus. That was like the main finding. But it is very important to mention that the studies and the study designs and the approaches were quite different. And I think this comes from the fact that we were quite in the beginning of the pandemic and a lot of research groups were just looking for something which could help quickly to somehow control the pandemics. And so there were a lot of working groups worldwide that uh, suddenly came up uh, with that idea. And uh, yes, so in the end, that uh, research or my research showed that, uh, yeah, indeed, uh, the dog is A quite good uh, screening or test system. So we we found that uh, 80% of studies showed higher sensitivity than 80% and 90% of studies showed a specificity of higher than 90% and even low biased studies. So uh, we had some low biased studies. They showed that, yeah, they showed a good performance of uh, over 80% sensitivity and 90% specificity too. So that was quite Uh, Nice to see that even the unbiased studies showed a quite good uh, performance for the dogs. Yeah, but we also realized that, as I mentioned in the beginning, we had some issues how to standardize, right? Or we saw that a lot of studies had a lot of standardization issues. So that's also one important finding. We need more standardization and certification processes for dogs to detect medical diseases.
0: Two important issues that sort of came up in the article were one about bias in studies and which studies were more or less biased. How do you operationalize that? How do you decide when you're doing this analysis, the bias of the studies and why is that important?
1: Yeah. So we used one tool uh, that was the QUADAS 2 tool, which is created for systematic reviews and is created for the assessment of diagnostic tests. And so that was one uh, one part that we used. So we looked at dogs as a diagnostic test in, in this respect. But of course, dogs are not only diagnostic tests, they are also living beings. That's why we also used another system, but we can talk about that maybe later. But what in the beginning we used was the Quadras 2 tool, which helped us to see if, if studies are biased or not. So... We were looking there at how was the patient selection, how was the index test, that means the dog, how it was used or how dogs were deployed. We were looking at the reference standard, which was the the PCR test, and also at the flow and timing um, domain. Uh, We also had a look concerning a more temporal dimension concerning when tests are shown to dogs after they have been taken before from the people. So then we looked at the bias and also the applicability and we used this semi quantitative tool to do the bias assessment in the first place.
0: So you have a set of things about the way the experiments were done or might be done that you think are important going in and some of those will sort of favor less bias studies and some will favor more bias studies.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And then you have just yourself or multiple people assessing the individual
1: articles. Yes, I did the main work, actually. Mm -hmm. So I I assessed the articles, but I also had a colleague who did like the cross-check. Excellent. If we used the Quarters 2 tool correctly, and we had a high degree of correlation between our results. So we knew that the tool worked, actually, and we asked the right questions.
0: I also just have to note that you get an award for, I think, the first article in Annals of Epidemiology ever to have smiley faces and frowny faces in your table. So...
1: (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was that was quite uh, un, uh, unconventional. Unconventional, but <laughs> it gives a little color. So you know, uh, to, to the article. Yeah, it gives a little bit color, exactly. And it was uh, also in the beginning for me it was quite weird to use smiley faces because that's not the, the thing you use normally. But on the other side, it was uh, like a fresh new thing to to use smileys
0: yeah and it, it can I mean it conveys it conveys what you want to convey so that's good
1: exactly and that's yeah that's the point it's a semi-quantitative way uh, right of assessing and that's that's a good way to to assess like semi-quantitative data which actually for systematic review is the right scale let's say to use for assessment yeah so uh, we also used another tool but but we can come to that uh, in an instance.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean we can go ahead and talk about because you did use two approaches. One was this mm-hmm. Quadus 2 tool, but then there was also kind of a quantitative mm-hmm. system that you used. Can you say a little bit more about that system and what it was used for?
1: Yes. First of all, we wanted to do a systematic review. So it was important for us to have a quality feature for the systematic review, which is, as I as I mentioned before, a semi-quantitative tool like Quadus 2. And normally, there are some opinions about it and some rationales about it that you should not use score systems for systematic reviews, like scores that you can count, let's say. Well, we had a dilemma because then we thought about, okay, what to do, because on the one side, the dog when we use the quadros too, the dog, we see the dog as a uh, diagnostic system, but the dog is not only a diagnostic system like other diagnostic systems, it's also a living being. It's, it's a living being who's working with its nose with its olfactory tool. And that's why the other idea was to use a quantitative tool, that score system, uh, because this is a score system that assesses the quality of scent detection work. And then we decided to do both, to just put both together to also stress that dogs are not devices. Dogs are living beings. We wanted to show that dichotomy. And that's why we use both tests. Even if the score system is not adequate for systematic reviews, anyhow, we thought that it gives a, you know, a big picture of the whole test system, living being dog. And that's that's the rationale why we used both tests. But uh, of course, the, the score system should be considered a add-on to the actual. Systematic review, diagnostic uh, test quality assessing tool, QUADAS two.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really just interesting point for people that are thinking about. You know, we often get in the pattern of saying like, well, the tool that everybody uses this, but is is this or that? But we really sort of took into account the nature of the intervention or the nature of the sort of uh, public health tool here. Yeah, and exactly, just yeah. added a uh, a second. Um, you know, think you think about it as triangulation of all the issues that are involved. So,
1: exactly, yeah.
0: So, can you talk about any of the limitations of your review, or or what you would you could think of them as weaknesses, or you could think of them as opportunities to do next steps? But mm-hmm. um, so, mm-hmm. what's what, what's unanswered, and and what what do you think some of the
1: limitations are? Um, yeah. So, uh, one of the limitations I think that should be mentioned is. I am also one of the researchers who did canine affection studies in SARS-CoV-2 detection and of course those studies also fell into the, um, the inclusion criteria. So that is one of the limitations I would say but I think it's, it's really important to say that I anyhow looked at the guidelines that I made, uh, I really sticked to the guidelines and of course that's challenging but I stick to the guidelines I know the dog community, uh, olfactory detection community. I know what groups are doing. I know that that not everything, what is written in the papers. So, of course, what is written in the papers is, of course, the truth. But, of course, there are a lot of things between the lines that happen, you know, and I know those things. But anyway, I really referred only to the published information and I did not add any information that were known uh, but not published or so, you know. So it's really, I really was, it was really important to me to just look like okay just have rules and i stick to the rules and i just just worked that through and uh, so i think i did it well i think we also had some statisticians in in our team who also gave the confirmation of how i was working that this was okay anyhow that's one of the limitations of course so i was also part of of it but it was important also to us to just you know to to state to to make a statement also to to yeah. assess scientifically if this is really going into the di- right direction or not, the, the whole thing with the detection docs.
0: I think this is a general issue, which is in a lot of research communities, mm. tend to have a, a fairly small number of investigators and we we know each mm-hmm. other, we see each other at conferences. And so I think that exactly. to me, the important thing is acknowledging that that could be a source of bias, you know, and saying, I'm mm-hmm. gonna set up these tools in very objective ways, Mm-hmm. So that that will be my touch point. So I really appreciate you raising that issue because it's one that we don't mm-hmm. really talk about that often. But mm-hmm. but especially in a in a smaller, more sort of focused kind of research community, I think.
1: Yeah, exactly. So so we are quite a small research community. That's that's one of the points that that are important to stress. That yes. So we are also most interested in in our subjects, right? So so of course we write also the uh, we have the knowledge to know what is really important what le- really matters in this research field so that's why um yeah those things happen yeah uh, but it's it's important to mention yeah of course yeah
0: it's important it's just important to acknowledge and be systematic mm-hmm. that's all yeah so are, are you aware of programs that are using dogs for COVID screening currently
1: so um actually Yes, there are some programs, or there were some programs. For example, in uh, Dubai, they use dogs at the airport, and even it was not only in a scientific way. So they really use the dogs as as an established tool. Let's say Uh, we also did something quite interesting, I think, but that was a study, but a field study. So uh, we did. um, a concert we organize concerts here with the uh, in, in Germany with a with a um, huge uh, concert company and we organize concerts uh, just to check if dogs could be used you know in in the yeah in the entrance of a concert uh, or of a venue to see if dogs could for example screen screen people in a in a real life yeah scenario and that worked quite well so th- there are let's say The way is paved to use dogs in those, in this ways, but anyhow, we need more infrastructure and the better infrastructure, training infrastructure, uh, which uh, is similar like in uh, the explosive detection or drug detection dogs. So that's something that has to still be established.
0: Yeah. You mentioned this idea that standardization of the training and certification of the dogs would be important next step. So you've sort of shown a scientific principle here. And you've shown that it it meets one of our criteria around ro- the robustness, which is that it plays out in in multiple settings and or studies done in different places. So you sort of build that piece. Yeah. But then, really, to move into program, you mentioned standardization of training and certification of dogs. So. Just building, I guess it would build on ideas like the explosives detections, but what does it look like to put those in place? And are there any efforts underway to, to do that, either for the future of this pandemic, this ongoing pandemic, or for future public health challenges?
1: So I need to admit, we have been talking a lot with politicians here in Europe. And I need to admit, well, there were, there were some uh, some politicians in some some administrative structures which also supported us to do such studies but somehow you know there was not a point in which there was a decision to establish this infrastructure for training for example of dogs of medical detection dogs I think it's it's still quite a it's difficult to say but I think people maybe do not trust that much a dog maybe then they trust a, a test which was artificially produced and not produced by biology, you know, but but by humans. So they, they do trust more of those things. So we don't, it did not have any opportunities to establish this outside, let's say, outside the scientific space. But anyhow, anyway, the scientific space is just... A lot of things are happening right now, even concerning, um, for example, long COVID or post-COVID syndrome. Uh, We are also doing some research and going for that, going more in this direction. Something happened in the uh, scientific space. People are quite interested. But the first goal we had, uh, this did not work out, to use really dogs to help to break uh, through the infection chains of the pandemic.
0: I mean, there there may be work that can continue to be done more on a behavioral science side, maybe about the acceptability of this, because I, I think people don't bat an eye. I mean, I was in an airport earlier this week and somebody came through with a dog and like people didn't even look up from what they were reading. The dog's just checking out the bags. I mean, it's obviously for that sort of explosive's purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so I think trying to understand maybe through qualitative methods or through surveys, you know, what, what people's concerns are. Yeah. And and if it's a useful tool, then I think it's a separate question to ask how we introduce it. But clearly in the case of airport safety and explosives detection, and I think drug detection, maybe in like customs and immigration, there's accepted this is acceptable and people just sort of do their thing and the dogs do their thing and you know it's not a big deal. So it may just be a little bit of acclimation.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right.
0: Great. So I want to turn now to what we call behind the paper. And so I think when we talk to colleagues at whatever stage of career, the questions are always like, how do you come up with ideas? Like, how do you overcome the things that are challenging about doing these? And how do you work with colleagues? And all those pieces that aren't part of the research question, but they're important about how we get work done. So I wonder, you sort of alluded to some of them, but you see you have this idea um, and you can get the data and it sounds like you're in a network, but, but what were the, what was the biggest challenge just sort of in getting started, you know, software people's involvement, um, skepticism of colleagues, like, like what came up that you you sort of had to get in place before you could move ahead and do the work.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think the biggest challenge for me was, you know, the reading of the papers, but. Not just reading, just reading again and again and again and again and again, and reading between the lines. Mm-hmm. and um, I really was keen on not missing any detail, and that was really, really difficult because uh, I don't know if you have ever seen a supplementary table that is <laughs> so huge. so mm-hmm. if I if I have put it into the main um, uh, main manuscript, let's say then and I think it would have exploded. but <laughs> so, uh, really i I really looked at each detail, and that was actually the 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 thing that was like yeah
0: but you did you did for transparency though then I think the supplementary table ends up being an online yeah. appendix like so if people want to go and see that yes, yes. Um, yeah So yeah. it did it did
1: come in and see that yeah
0: yeah I think that I, I do think sometimes figuring out in the systematic reviews that I've been involved in it's also a case that you start out with a set of things that you're interested in but for the first six or eight papers that you read you realize like oh that, like that this thing is also of interest and maybe I should so it's a little bit of an iterative process yeah.
1: exactly and then you start again to read it again, you know but uh, at the same time to stick to your guidelines you know and that's that's really a uh, yeah yeah it, it, it may may be quite uh, intense, you know yeah. Uh, just to stick to your guidelines, but then to realize, oh, there's something else which could be really important. Okay, I need to I need to start again and to read it under a different light again. You know, so exactly this m- machinery was quite uh, yeah labor intense. Yeah. but uh, it, but but the other things around me uh, like a software or uh, colleagues or something that was quite uh, so. They let me work. We worked together uh, and uh, we had meetings and that worked quite well. So there there was no problem. (laughs) It's great. just about the material itself.
0: I have to ask as someone who started not in research training, but in clinical training in veterinary medicine myself. And people always ask me, why did you go to veterinary school, and then and then like do epidemiology work and uh, you know people? So uh, you and you really a lot of your work is you know related to um, to dogs. So what inspired you, or what was your path to sort of get in to be in a college of veterinary medicine and to do this work around you know with dogs,
1: as in terms of the direction of your research career? Yeah. So. Um... After or during my veterinary studies, I, I realized that I wanted to do research. Somehow, you know, something happened in my head that I realized, okay, I am quite more interested in what, what the background, what, what is happening in the background, let's say. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was one way. And um, and I started with uh, preclinical studies and then came back to the clinic, let's say, and now I'm a postdoc at the Interface of clinic and basic research. So it's really an interesting field, um, especially in dogs, because dogs are great so, so we are living with dogs together for thousands of years and there are great models for diseases for humans but not only this they are like our they, they, they are living with us they are our family members you know and and that's really interesting to also have a look on them to, to also research them to to bring the importance of of those living beings also more into the foreground i can tell you something i had one inspiring meeting in my high school time there was a uh, elderly lady that was a good friend of my father. They they had, uh, they were in a group, a photography group, let's say, and that, that was their hobby. And they were, were like traveling around Europe from cities and making pictures of cultural and of historical stuff. And then they were, were meeting once a week and just discussing pictures in a group. So that was quite a very creative space. And I have been there sometimes. And as a little child, then when I grew uh, older, I, of course, was not there that much. But she asked then somehow my father, what about my exams for high school? How How is it going? And my father told her that I also do a part of my exams in French because I lived at the French-German border. And she was French. She was a translator in French and German. And so she asked my father if I would accept her to come once a week to our home just to discuss about subjects, reading newspapers, discuss about the, the, the different things in the newspapers. And so uh, that was really inspiring space for me. And she was really inspiring. And suddenly she asked me, what, what, what would you do uh, after, after your high school? And I was telling her I want to be a veterinarian. And then she did not say like, oh, OK, interesting. So you will be a clinician. Interesting. What will you do there? No, she, she was her first sentence was, wow, there is so much to discover in veterinary medicine. And I did not think about discovering something in veterinary medicine. Of course, you can, you, you always have to discover as you grow in your work, you discover new, new things. That's important. But I did not think about the research, research aspect of discovering something that there's so much to discover. And that was like a little sparkle from a very inspiring person to me that uh, became, yeah, became a flame, became a fire. And then I think that had also a big, great role For me, you know, meetings with, for example, elderly, wise people. So that's an advice to the young folks. Put away your phone and talk to the people around you. (laughs) It's quite important, I think. And sometimes when it's getting hard, I sometimes think of her and think of her sentence that there's so much to discover. And that's something that is showing me the big picture. So that's, that's the energy source, I think, sometimes. So that was really inspiring. Maybe this is too long. Just a small, sorry.
0: No, I think this is I think this is absolutely perfect because I think how we get to where we are, two things. One, how we get to where we are and sharing that is a generous thing because there will be some people who are, you know, well earlier in their careers and I think what you're sort of saying is that there's a value in sort of in talking to people like whether they're in our field or not about what you do of explaining what you do yes and of uh, being inspired by you know by other people's thoughts and uh, i think in in these in these podcasts we sort of ask about this very thing which is like you know how did you end up getting here and i think these kinds of events one are, are nice to acknowledge exactly i hope if she's a podcast listener you know that you can share it onwards but i think it's inspiring for people just to listen to those things that happen in our lives that feel that feel important because they often are important and and lead us to important places so who or what do you think has been the biggest influence on your professional work and path
1: uh yeah so for my current work i think that the head of department here holger is his name he has I think one of the biggest influence on the work so he's an incredibly creative and and really positive guy and uh, a a real out-of-the-box thinker and yeah he he makes actually you to like to leave your comfort zone Uh, and i think this is one of the most important things to have the energy for changing something and uh, to change something to the better and in the first moment one thinks when he has a new idea that it's crazy But then suddenly everything makes sense. So I don't know how he's doing that, but uh, he he is quite talented (laughs) concerning this.
0: What a nice acknowledgement of his role. And, you know, my old career person perspective is uh, as you move on, think about what that meant to you and how you can create that kind of environment when you get in that position Along the same lines, if you could think back to yourself, you talked about like at an earlier stage in your education and when you were a younger person, if you could talk to that younger person and uh, give your younger self a piece of advice, what would it be?
1: So I think, well, maybe don't worry too much. That's one uh, of an advice I would, I would tell to myself. I would maybe also tell myself, trust the process. So whatever, whatever process it is, just give it more trust. And I also think that, well, I would maybe also say that if it feels not comfortable, it is the right way to investigate this feeling and not to run away from it. And I think now, right now, I am there that, uh, you know, if it, if it just don't, does not feel like 100% right, just don't turn away, just investigate it. Uh, maybe there's an opportunity, you know, that's, I think, important advice. So
0: that brings us to the end of our episode. We covered a very broad span of (laughs) topics, and I'm so grateful for you, Dr. Miller, for joining us today. It was a real pleasure to have you, and hopefully we'll see some more of your work in the published literature and get a chance to talk again. Thank you
1: so much. Thank you. Uh, So it was a pleasure to me. Thank you.
0: I'm your host, Patrick Sullivan. Thanks for tuning in to this episode, and see you next time on EpiTalk. Brought to you by Annals of Epidemiology, the official journal of the American College of Epidemiology. For a transcript of this podcast, or to read the article featured in this episode and more from the journal, you can visit us online at www.annalsofepidemiology.org.